Welcome to The Theatre, the podcast of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. The Theatre is an ongoing conversation on surgery and surgical training, featuring practitioners from around the world, and discussions ranging from learning and professional development to advances in technology and technique. This is the first of a two-part podcast focusing on surgical supervision during COVID-19 and beyond. Presented by Dan Barrow, colorectal surgeon and clinical lead of the Royal College of Surgeons of England's Excellence in Surgical Supervision course, and Nicholas Mitchell, RCS educator. In this episode, Dan and Nick will discuss the impact COVID-19 has had on surgical supervision as we pass the nine-month mark since the start of the first lockdown and approach the end of the year. I'm Nicholas Mitchell, an educator uh, at the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And hi, I'm Dan Beryl. So I'm a colorectal surgeon and deputy director of education at Doncaster and Bassett Law Teaching Hospitals, which is Yorkshire for anybody who doesn't know. Uh, I'm also um, the clinical lead for the Excellence in Surgical Supervision course, which is run by the Royal College. So... Um, today we're going to be looking at um, COVID and the impact on trainers and supervisors. Um, so Dan, taking as a start, what's the impact been um, on this kind of activity? Yeah, um, so where do we start, Nick? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine it's a long list. <laughs> it'll come as no surprise to anybody to know that training uh, has had a real knock taken um, because of COVID and because of the pandemic. And that affects trainers and it affects trainees. It affects us both as groups, but I think obviously the impact on trainees is going to be much more significant for them. And we've always got to bear that in mind as, as we talk. Is that is is the impact equal amongst all grades of for trainees? So it's not, and I think you know we now actually have a bit of evidence about the impacts on trainees. And there's the there's a really useful document which JCST have just produced uh, with Asset and Bota and COPS, which is the Confederation of Postgraduate Schools of Surgery. And, and I'd certainly recommend anybody who is training at the moment, whether you're a trainer or a trainee, to just have a look at it. Um, the impacts have been uneven and unequal across groups, but there are some really pretty stark headline figures which are worth just bringing out. So logbook numbers for trainees are down over 50% in all surgical specialties since April. Nobody will be surprised by that, but sometimes when you just see it in black and white and it's really laid out, I think it really brings home how large the impact has been. Um, obviously, there's been adverse impacts in other areas, so it's not just your operative experience in your logbook. Outpatient clinics, ward rounds, MDTs um, have all been affected. And there's been a differential impact, as you said, Nick, across different specialties. 
the greatest impact is those elective non-cancer conditions which will be present across all specialties and certainly in the first wave as a general surgeon on call we noticed vastly reduced numbers of patients coming to hospital relatively speaking we were quiet i can use the q word in retrospect i think safely um although some of the people that did present did tend to present with more advanced pathology and um, that's not quite the same in the second wave and our experience at the moment is you know we're we're now back up to similar levels of admissions than pre-covid what about the impact uh, on for trainees at different at the different stages of their uh, development? Yeah, so again, the JCST report talks about that, and the impact is greatest for early years trainees. So perhaps we're thinking about core trainees and more senior trainees, and we've got to think about the impact that the exam cancellations have had, and when people are reaching those critical progression points, so the end of core training or coming up towards CCT, the impact that the loss of experience has on their ability to complete their curriculum requirements. So it's trainees approaching those progression points, those critical progression points that the impact has perhaps been the greatest. And again, I think that's you know almost stating the obvious. And to a certain extent, you know, you don't want to overlook the rest of the trainees just because they're not approaching a critical progression point. They've had the same amount of loss of experience. Um, and no doubt they're going through a degree of bereavement and grieving over that. Um, but it's those ones at those critical progression points or have been trying to set exams in order to progress in their careers when, in whom the impact is more obvious and more measurable. And, you know, that leads on to the outcomes. Um, as you're aware, Nick, the uh, ARCPs had new COVID outcomes that were introduced in order to take account of the impacts of the pandemic. And again, the data on this is pretty stark. 20% of surgical trainees on one of those COVID outcomes, the outcome tens. Um, a third of the ST7s, on an outcome 10 uh, and 12 percent of st8s on an outcome 10 so again by just saying those figures out loud or seeing them in black and white i think that really helps you to begin to appreciate the scale of the impact that the pandemic is having because you know the pandemic hasn't had an impact it's having an impact it's ongoing so I mean, it must be fair to say uh, for the the trainees, uh, well, and the trainers, this um, the issue about opportunities must be inf impacting performance, uh, future performance, and also uh, trainee confidence. Yeah, and you know, again, as the JCST report points out, it's an impact for the whole NHS. It's about the workforce of the future, as they say in their hashtag. No training today, no surgeons tomorrow. So it's not something that's isolated to surgeons. It's not something that's isolated to trainees. This is potential impact for the NHS and for patients in the future. So it's something that has to be taken seriously. And it's something that we all need to really focus on. And, you know, what we're here to talk about is 
trainers and trainees because that's that's what we do um, particularly when we're doing courses like ESS um, and that's where we as people who are interested in training and supporting our trainees throughout this we really need to look at what we can do uh, to improve things. Picking up on that then I mean I'm, I'm curious about the, the, the question about trainee confidence uh, because obviously, as you say, that that is probably going to underlie most aspects of their activity um, as a medic. How might a trainer uh, assess and then support uh, a trainee with, shall we say, confidence issues? Yeah, well, I think you're right to highlight that, Nick. I mean, confidence is a fragile thing when your levels of competence are not high. Or, you know, you're on that learning curve. You know, as surgeons, and I'm speaking about myself, I'm speaking about colleagues, we've operated much less over this period of time. And when we do go back to doing particularly some of the bigger operations or in complex patients, you know, there is a degree of maybe nervousness, maybe trepidation when you're first stepping back into the operating theatre. And we are in the position, the privileged position, of already perhaps having achieved our competence. But confidence can wane, even if our competence is already there. And we might use that old analogy of, you know, it's like riding a bike. And once we're in there, we feel okay. But that's not going to be the same for our trainees, whose levels of competence are not yet enough and their the amount of experience is not yet great enough to support their confidence through that period, this period of time when their exposure, their experience and everything has been vastly reduced. So I think you're right to highlight that confidence is an issue. We see that with any career break. So trainees who are returning to training after a break for whatever reason, and that includes non-trainees that includes consultants as well you know confidence is one of the issues wanting to um, maybe rehearse some of those skills behaviors those technical skills and non-technical skills and be supported back into the workplace um, is a really important thing and you know there's the HE support framework which helps to do that for trainees coming back into training so we certainly can't overlook that impact. Is there is I mean we're talking about rehearsal. Is there any other tools that uh, trainers might think about in terms of supporting trainees at this difficult time? Yeah, I mean simulation is the the obvious one when we're talking about technical skills, and if you've got established simulation facilities, or even if you haven't, friendly, and you can make something up uh, with a cardboard box and a bit of string. Simulation it can, could be really key in supporting trainees' technical skills. But simulation is wider than just the technical skills simulation that perhaps we as surgeons think about. There's a huge range of things you can do with simulation, looking at non-technical skills and decision-making and clinical scenarios, all of these things which can be explored within departments when the time allows. Mm. We're always wanting to keep in mind the impact on our trainees, um, but we can't forget the impact 
on the trainers. And Indeed. the pressures that some people have been under as they've been going through the pandemic. Um, and that's impacted trainers just as much as trainees. And, you know, your ability to have that, that mental capacity to innovate, to think differently, to look at a period of blank time and think, right, I must go and do some training and, and do something rather than just thinking, I just need a break. You know, I think we have to recognise that that is a factor as well. Okay, so so in, in short, there, there may be opportunities at the moment, but both both the, the trainee and, and, and the trainer need to have the capacity uh, to be able to avail of it. Yeah, I think so. And, and that doesn't take away from the fact that we might want to do things, but, you know, you know, everybody's mental health has the potential to have been impacted by what we've all been through over the last, I've lost count now, where are we up to? Nine months? I, I, I dare say it feels, it feels longer than that. Um, thinking about the last nine months, um, from what I, I've, I've, I've read, there's been quite a lot of forced innovation um, in terms of practice, uh, which has meant that perhaps particular trainers have had to um, adopt different roles and see a delivery of care from uh, different points of view. Um, do you, what do you think about that as a, a particular source of learning, Dan? Yeah, Nick, it's been the best of times. It's been the worst of times. And I think the pandemic has brought out the best and the worst in people. And certainly the same can be applied to the NHS and be applied to surgery and trainers. <clears throat> you know, the worst of times, we're outlining the impacts on trainees we know about the impacts on trainers and our ability to deliver the service that we would want to deliver for our patients. And obviously, therefore, we're talking about the impacts on our patients. But there has been that ability to be innovative, even if that has been forced upon us. It has brought out the best in, I think, the NHS and in trainers in order to be as innovative and creative as possible in order to try and maintain some degree of normality and some degree of training. Does that mean, therefore, that uh, perhaps uh, the, the boundaries between specialties have become blurred? I don't know about the boundaries, but what I do know is that large numbers of us have worked quite differently across the course of the last nine months. Examples of that would be surgical consultants who haven't been having much in the way of activity, who have been asked to run COVID wards, really relearning aspects of medicine that they'd perhaps long forgotten, learning again what it's like to work on a ward and be effectively a junior doctor, learning again how to work differently in teams. Um, I, I wasn't one of those. I stayed within surgery, but we did change the way we worked in the first wave. And consultants went on to 12 and a half hour shift work, supporting the more junior trainees on the acute surgical ward, whilst our registrars, for example, were more ED based in order to provide senior decision making down there. And again, you know, the talk about it being the best of times. 
I actually quite valued that. I was, I felt more like part of the team again. I remember some of the camaraderie that there used to be when you were working as part of a team, when you were a more junior doctor. I certainly connected much better and was able to support the foundation year one doctors and and the other juniors much better because I was just present and I was there. And that's something that, you know, was valuable for me. Um, And of course, there's been all sorts of other impacts. For example, clinics, you know, vastly reduced ability to deliver face-to-face clinics. So we've moved to, in our trust, certainly largely telephonic clinics. In other areas, people have been conducting video consultations. And again, you know, the pandemic is going to have a legacy that is both positive as well as negative. And for me, telephone clinics saving people coming to the hospital whilst they have their challenges uh, are a vast improvement and something we probably should have done a long time ago and had the technology to do, but this has forced our hand. And so you know, we can't look past some of the improvements that can be brought in and will be brought in and should be maintained, even in spite of us focusing on some of those impacts. Okay. So it's fair to say that there has been uh, quite a lot of opportunities for learning. But it, it strikes me from what you're saying is, is that we're, we're coming back to that um, old chestnut of the balance between service delivery and more formal learning, particularly for trainees and for trainers trying to manage that. What do you think about that? So a nice controversial point to end on then, Nick. <laughs> you know me. <laughs> um, so there's a, lot, a whole variety of opinion on this. Um, there is a difference for me between learning and training. Training implies that there is a trainer there who is supervising, supporting, advising. Whereas service is not necessarily involving a trainer being there and service at the other end of the spectrum doesn't necessarily involve learning and you could argue for example that putting in your 1000th cannula doesn't involve much learning and is really service provision equally just being on call even if you're not being supervised at the time seeing patients having exposure to new patients who are presenting doing the judgment and decision-making and diagnosis based upon your knowledge, perhaps even doing some of the operating unsupervised. That's learning, although it might not be training if a supervisor isn't there. So I think, you know, training and service, it's actually a spectrum. And I don't think it's as as binary as one thing or the other. Um, But Again, you go back to those impacts and there is no doubt that a lot of what has been expected of our trainees during the pandemic has been more towards the service provision end than it has been towards the training end. And that's something that we really need to perhaps refocus on. And as the JCST document says, because I keep referring back to it, And again, I encourage people to read it if you're interested in training and doing better for our trainees. It's asking us to become much more active 
in our delivery of training rather than passive. And I think that me applies to the trainees as well. You need to look for the learning opportunities and you need to look for the training opportunities and make the most of all of those opportunities. So an almost an opportunistic uh, an agenda um, with some flexibility built in there for both the trainers and the trainees. Yeah, absolutely. Um, use every opportunity, use every patient, use every ability to do some form of simulation even if that's just a discussion between a trainer and a trainee about a case or a condition use the opportunity to do the wbas when you may have more downtime than not um, there's lots of examples in the jcst document which everybody can have a read of but you know that's what the title Absolutely. is it's making the most of every training opportunity and it looks at it from the point of view of national bodies, trainers and trainees. We can all, you know, up our game and make a little bit of extra effort to try and mitigate the impacts of the pandemic, even if we can't get rid of them completely. Thank you for listening. Dan and Nick will return in two weeks' time with the second and final part of this podcast, where they will discuss what the future holds for surgical supervision going into 2021 and beyond. Please see the show notes for links to some of the resources mentioned in this podcast, as well as further information on the Excellence in Surgical Supervision, or ESS, course. For future episodes, please subscribe to The Theater wherever you get your podcasts. And for the latest information and updates from the college, please visit our website or follow us on social media.